Our scripture reader today is Lou Damiani, and he will be reading Acts 2, 1 through 12. In honor of God's word, let's stand together as Lou reads. Listen as I read. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear, each one of us, his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Eliamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? This is the word of the Lord. Today is a day for a party. It's a birthday party, the birthday of the church, born on Pentecost. This day we celebrate. After 10 prayerful days after the ascension of Jesus Christ, The Spirit was poured out on the church, and something new began. If we make some date assumptions, that was 1,988 years ago. What do you give as a birthday gift to someone 1,988 years old? I'm not sure, but I do know this. The older the birthday is that you celebrate, the less important the wrapped gift, the more important who's there. Together, in one accord, the church, belonging as the bride to Jesus Christ, empowered and indwelled by the Holy Spirit as the down payment and promise for the future glory that's coming, is what we celebrate at Pentecost. It's a perfect day to celebrate and to consider how the gospel changes belonging. We're in a series here looking at the the implications of the gospel in all these dimensions of life. And this morning we're looking at the dimension of belonging. Pentecost is a word that means 50th. It's a festival that was marked on the 50th day after Passover. In the Old Testament, often it was called the Feast of Weeks because seven weeks are counted off between the Passover and when you get to Pentecost. And this is one of the three major festivals that if you were a faithful Israelite, you made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate this. There are harvest connections in this uh, particular festival because it kind of fell at the end of the barley harvest and the beginning of the wheat harvest. And um, just like we expect the festivals to have some connection to redemptive history as well as the lived experience of the Israelites... Like Passover, uh, the deliverance from Egypt pointing to the fulfillment in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, this holiday kind of celebrates 
the fulfillment of a promise kept. Just like a harvest, when it's planted, is kind of like a promise of anticipation, and it's fulfilled at harvest. The promise of the coming of the Spirit and this new age of the Spirit and the unfolding of the redemptive history of God's plan is what is celebrated at Pentecost. It is a joyous age marked by the expansion of the people of God. The church is birthed and is made up not just as the physical offspring of Abraham, a collection of a remnant people, the Jews in a small country, but now it's spread throughout the world. All people, Jews and Gentiles of every race and class, are brought in by faith in Jesus to the church. And the gospel changes belonging. What exactly is belonging? Well, we may all have an inner gut sense of what it is or when it's missing. It may be hard to define. We have all witnessed extraordinary social and political dislocation over this past year. Not that things were healthy before, but the anger, the animosity, the division that we've witnessed are symptoms of a deep and largely unacknowledged disorder in our modern culture. And even as we kind of awkwardly emerge from this pandemic and the restrictions, we are told by sociologists who study these things that at a larger level we are now more emotionally distant from one another, we are more socially hesitant, which results in our being much more reluctant to shake a hand or initiate a conversation or be willing to volunteer to serve in a social setting. It's taken a toll. I think it's fair to say that we're all experiencing some form of unsettledness or disorientation. And this unsettledness and disorientation raises questions for us. If I'm experiencing alienation and isolation, how and where do I belong? How do I find belonging? Where and how can I rest in the confidence that knows this is my place, these are my people, this is our shared story? So for the sake of this conversation this morning, let me suggest we think of belonging in this way. Belonging is the subjective feeling of shalom. Belonging is the subjective feeling of shalom. It is the opposite of alienation and the resulting isolation. Shalom is something we talk about often here. Shalom, the word peace, as it's understood in the Bible, is not just the absence of hostility, but the presence of all things good and right. The fullness of health and wholeness and right relationship. Shalom is the goodness between things, not just in the things themselves. It's often pointed out that in Genesis 1, as God forms and fills that original creation, he pronounces over and over this refrain, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. In our Western mindset, we think of these things as particular and isolated. That's a good redbud tree. That's a good chipping sparrow. We think of all the pieces 
and their goodness. And that's not wrong. But the instinctive uh, outlook from the ancient Near East would think of the goodness primarily in the relationships between these things. That there is a goodness in the harmony of all these things, how they work and fit and exist together. It sees goodness in the harmony and integrity between all these things. And so the shalom in that biblical sense of peace is good things in right relationship to and with one another. And it grows and flourishes in the soil of justice and truth and goodness and beauty. Let me just acknowledge that a fuller discussion of what belonging is should attend to an understanding of place. And we'll have to wait for another time to unpack that. But let's talk about belonging and relationship today. We long to belong. But belonging, when shalom is absent, is often absent or broken or distorted. When shalom was vandalized in the fall, it's no surprise that belonging is also lost. And where it is still found, it is easily spoiled. I think most of us know the experience of not belonging. There's plenty of stories of that feeling. It might be as deep and disruptive as being a refugee displaced into a new and unfamiliar culture or as distressing as being a young child moving to a new place and sent alone to attend a new school. Even this morning, you may, you may be sitting here now with an ache and a yearning for belonging because you know that's not your experience today. And in the world, there are many offers for a belonging that is not shalom, but a corrupted copy or distortion. I mean, street gangs offer belonging, but it's not a healthy belonging. The internet offers promise of belonging. Uh, from the empty calories of many social media platforms uh, to the recruitment of extremist organizations who offer belonging in turn or in, in, uh, in, in exchange for allegiance. But you can identify this false belonging because shalom is never pursued. False belonging always is marked by an intense interest in excluding or disadvantaging someone else or some other group to make sure that they are maintained as the enemy and not allowed to belong. That's not shalom. That's not all things in good, right relationship. You know, even where healthy belonging exists, it can be hard to maintain. Even in church life, it can be hard. Even in a church plant or an established church that goes through kind of a, a beautiful season of 
opportunity and ministry and people share together seeing God do something special. There's this intense feeling of belonging, but it's also attractive and it brings new people and a broader experience of people who want to take place. And those new people bring new opportunities to expand uh, ministry and flourishing. But they also require some changes. And now it's a test for that inner core group that's experienced that first season. Are we still going to be a church not for ourselves? Or is it maybe we want to be a church for ourselves now? And hold on to what we had and in that grip, strangle, shalom. Belonging is not easy to maintain. When that happens in a church, it becomes less of a church and more of a club. And its attractiveness is lost. So this morning, how does Pentecost serve to advance us toward experiencing and enlarging this category of belonging? To invite more and more into the experience of a foretaste of shalom. Well, we heard Acts chapter 2, the pilgrims that were gathered in Jerusalem or people who had moved there from uh, the, the diaspora, there's gathered here in Jerusalem on Pentecost Day people from the whole known world, the entire Roman world, that whole region kind of to the west of, uh, of Israel, and, and the Parthian or Persian world, that whole region to the east. The whole known world is populated with representatives, either um, having taken up residence or visited for the festival. They're there in Jerusalem, and they experience the result of the outpouring of the Spirit in the proclamation of the Word in their hearing of their native home language. It's a miracle. Something profound is going on. And if you know some Old Testament background in the book of Genesis, you hear some echoes of what is happening and what is being accomplished and undone in this event. Acts chapter 2, the nations are gathered. They hear the word in their own language. If you know back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis 10 and 11, Genesis 10 is a list of nations. It follows on kind of a new start after the flood, the list of the nations throughout the world. And then in chapter 11 is the rebellion unified against God in the building of the Tower of Babel. God comes down to those who were seeking to build this tower in this city, and he, in an act of judgment, confuses their language so that they can't cooperate anymore in that task. They leave off the project, and they're scattered throughout the world. In one sense, it's judgment because it's frustrating what they were attempting to do. Have you considered this? In another sense, it's also God nudging them along to do what they were supposed to do. 
It was his plan and command in the beginning to be fruitful, multiply, to fill the earth. And that filling of the earth was not just numerical. It was actually intended to grow in diversity of culture and expression. You see, Babel is undone, but it's not exactly reversed. If it had been purely reversed, everyone would have been able to hear one language once again. But that's not what the plan was. What God does is he enables in, throughout all these languages people to hear the gospel. And that is something that continues throughout the age of the Spirit with the longing and anticipation of that coming day that we see a glimpse of in Revelation chapter 7 when before the throne, John the seer says this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God delights in the diversity of cultural and racial expressions born out in the diversity of inherent in his good creation. And salvation doesn't erase that. In the new heavens and earth gathered before God is still preserved and redeemed all of this diversity. God doesn't erase culture. He redeems it. Every culture has its idols. Every culture has his problems. But every culture also has its unique outlook and, and uh, unique special way that it reflects God's character and God's image. Every nation, every people, a nation in this sense isn't, isn't the nation state we think about it. It would be uh, uh, the descendants of a common ancestor. So you think of all those Old Testament lists of Israelites and Edomites and Jebusites and Hittites. Those are all nations because they have a biological connection. But a people is a community of common history, common stories, common songs, common aspirations, and a common way of life. Think of culture, tribes as subunits of nations, uh, uh, Languages as an expression of culture. God is intending for all this variety to be present and represented in his ultimate day of salvation. And if you're still questioning whether God likes variety and diversity, look at the example of creation. Think of all the species just the species of fish, we know of over 30,000 species of fish. 30,000, and most of those are below the water where we can't see. Very few in the clear water we can see once in a while when we encounter it. God delights in that. Or flowering plants, 300,000 species. 
I mean, if you were on a committee to invent a flower and one had never existed, you'd be happy if your group came up with one. God delights in the fruitfulness of diversity and variety. In the wonder and glory of his greatness, it takes so many dimensions to reflect that glory and the wonder of it. And it was his plan from the beginning that in the expanding, fruitful filling of this earth, there would be increasing cultural variety. Holy and good, redeemed to reflect God's character in good ways. We're familiar with how that's not always worked out in Shalom. The variety is there, but it's experienced in misunderstanding, in judgment and prejudice, in sorting of castes and social uh, hierarchies. How does the gospel change this belonging? It doesn't erase culture or our identity in time and place and story, but it does call us in our sense of belonging to a story and an identity that is deeper and truer than our identity with a particular local culture and story. We're not erasing or devaluing what is good in our personal cultural story but we are rooting our ultimate identity in something deeper and truer. We are God's people. We are God's household. We are God's family. How often in the New Testament is family language used first for the people of God, the church, much more than biological family? Even Jesus is confronted, hey, your family's looking for you. And what does Jesus say? My family are right here. My family are those who are seeking to do the will of God. The language throughout the letters in the New Testament speak of brother and sister. Family language, it's, it's not just like courtesy talk. It's reinforcing a reality. There's a deeper sense of connection and belonging in the church. God's people, God's family, God's household created in God's image. An image restored because of the salvation won by Jesus Christ. An image that is, uh, is, is gradually more and more being sanctified by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And will one day be glorified when Christ comes again and restores all things. That is our primary identity, our primary belonging So how does that work out in a church? How does that work out in our lives where we are accustomed to uh, being more sensitive to what separates us than maybe what unites us? So we have a wonderful case study in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And we're going to spend uh, most of the rest of our time kind of looking at this case study and how it instructs us in the sense of belonging and working it out within the life of the church. 
And as it relates to uh, the meal setting and its social context, there's a scholar named Michael Rhodes that I'm particularly indebted to because he did his research, um, dissertation research on the social setting of this letter, particularly in the meal context. So 1 Corinthians 11 and 12. 11 has some instructions about how uh, the Lord's table was to be observed and how it wasn't rightly being observed in Corinth. And then uh, 12, talking about the unity of the body. So just some background, again, on Corinth as a city. Corinth is in Greece. It's about 50 miles west of Athens, a distance that is experienced as much further then than it would be in our time. It was strategically located at a point on a on uh, intersecting trade routes. And so it was uh, prosperous with economic opportunity. A more ancient city had been on that site, but it had been destroyed by the Romans and had sat empty for a long time till about 44 BC when it was refounded again as a Roman colony because it was just too strategic in its location to be abandoned as a city. So think of these dynamics. It's a young city. There's no landed um, aristocracy. It's a place for opportunity and commerce. It's a place to come and advance in opportunity. It's where you went when the social ladder of advancement was closed to you in a place like Rome, which was too long established, and you wanted to make a name and a place for yourself, go to Corinth. Because if you can make it in that independent, freewheeling, and ambitious place, then you have status. And as is often the case in places like this, it was kind of unconstrained in many ways. Think of it as kind of a Los Angeles, Las Vegas combined ethos in Corinth. Status and celebrity and not constrained. That's what Corinth is like. You read the letters there, you, you, you sense that Paul is really trying to, to guide these people to faithful following of Christ in the midst of that context. Status and celebrity mattered so much in Corinth. Paul reminded them, you know, it's not many of you who are wise and noble according to this world's standard that God called into relationship with him here. The rules and the ordering of things in Corinth aren't how things work in the kingdom. The gospel was bearing fruit in Corinth. And Paul reminds them and highlights for us that in Corinth, this church was a multiracial, multi-class church made up of Jews and Gentiles, enslaved people and free people. Chapter 12, verse 13, just as one body or just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ, for in one spirit we were all baptized, Pentecost reference, into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made of one spirit to drink. The 
the diversity of race and social status existed in this church in Corinth. And because of the gospel, they all belonged. But Paul was very concerned about how that wasn't always soaking in. Because there's some problems that showed up in Corinth. And one was evidenced at the Lord's table when they gather for fellowship dinner or a party. When they would observe in their gatherings the Lord's table. Paul writes to them, In the following I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Where are the divisions being evidenced and reinforced? In the communal meal that that church participated to celebrate their belonging with the body and blood of Christ at this meal. It helps to understand how strong this is when we understand how meals worked in the Corinthian society. Again, as a celebrity culture, there's a very clear hierarchy, an obvious social and economic ladder. And where you stood on that ladder depended on not just your sense of belonging, but all of your opportunities, your network, your chance at success. And a communal meal provided uh, a perfect place for you to claim your place on that social ladder of belonging. Imagine uh, these meals being hosted in the home of a wealthier Corinthian who have a larger home. But even the, the primary dining area wouldn't be large enough for the entire church. And those who had status, who had financial means, who were success, had the leisure to come and they would find their place kind of at the grown-up table in the dining room and they'd start and participate as they wanted to. And those who were the working class and those who had less status could come later and kind of fill in the edges or out in the courtyards. And if they didn't bring something, there might be nothing for them to eat. See, the Lord's table in this meal, which should have pointed to their belonging in Christ, was rather actually reinforcing the division, the separation, the alienation, the isolation that was more Corinthian than Christian. It's supposed to be the Lord's table and it it felt more like a middle school cafeteria. Who, who gets to sit with the cool kids? All this was just business as usual in Corinth terms. But Paul declares that such behavior has no place in the church. 
because of the way this multi-ethnic, multi-class congregation humiliated the have-nots, Paul couldn't even call what they were doing the Lord's Supper at all. They were just merely uh, mirroring the oppressive Corinthian hierarchies of alienation. When they gathered, they despised the church. They Here what he writes, he says, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul is intense here. But it makes perfect sense when this is not just bad manners. But it is taking the very gift of the Lord's table and turning it on its head. The very meal that should reinforce our belonging and participation and turning the experience into isolation and separation. In Christ and, and at the church, this social status hierarchy is smashed. And in churches like Corinth, they're putting those latter pieces back together. But what, what might even be more shocking is to think through what Paul's solution is to this. He doesn't um, disband this multiracial, multi-class church. He says, since you can't get along together, like, let's divide you up into three or four or six churches and everybody kind of find the one that fits your station and then we won't have this problem anymore. That's not Paul's solution. He says, uh, rather, he says, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That's one of two things that we're going to look at. First, he says, wait for one another. Now, this might be easily missed, but if you think of it simply as wait in terms of like temporal time, like if you're early, wait, just wait till everybody's there. But think of it as like, Wait staff at a restaurant, those who wait are those who welcome and serve. You could render it that way. Like, when you gather, welcome one another. That will require you to wait because you want everybody to belong. You're extending in this act the hospitality of welcome and participation. And you're not thinking of what... Your, your own agenda is, or establishing your own status, you're thinking of how can I welcome and serve those here? Again, this is right in that passage uh, that follows in those succeeding verses where he says, um, um, you know, you're Jew and Gentile, slave and free, all this diversity... But perhaps the more shocking things he tells them 
is in chapter 12, that section kind of after the passage of the image or the illustration of the body, you know, hand and foot and eye and ear and, uh, you know, the body, all these parts are needed, you know, that text. It's right in this context. And after he said that, he's still concerned about the divisions and how it's expressed in the church. And he says to this, he says to them this, 12, 24, and 25. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Do you hear what's shocking in that statement? He's saying this. If you want your church to reflect belonging without divisions so that there's a uniform care for one another, if that's the goal, pay attention that God's actually arranged and composed the body in this way. It gives greater honor to the part that lacked it. To have the outcome of unity, you actually have to pay attention to those who are on the lowest rung of the social and hierarchical status on the outside. Because God says, on the inside, we flip that. On the inside, we actually give the greater honor to those who are despised everywhere else. It is the theology of the cross. It is It is rejoicing in what is despised on the outside. Don't miss this. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. He does not say, you want uniformity and unity on the end of your meetings, just make sure you treat everybody the same at the beginning. He does not say that. He says God has composed the body this way, that those with less honor, we honor more. I mean, here's a word that sounds like affirmative action. We act, if we want unity, we actually have to put some inputs at the beginning that recognizes that the world we're stepping out of makes all these distinctions, and we're going to turn those upside down so that unity comes out. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no divisions in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. That is where belonging is experienced because it reflects shalom. It reflects justice, beauty, truth, and goodness. And by actively according special honor to the socially disenfranchised, those who are on the lowest rung in the culture, Our gathering is not for the worse, it is for the better. And of course, 
it's easy to make the gospel connection on this one. It's easy to see that this very path was demonstrated in Jesus Christ. I mean, you want to talk about belonging. Think of this, the second person of the Trinity in perfect, eternal fellowship in the triune Godhead. There is no greater belonging than that. And yet, to redeem us, he set aside the glories of heaven, took on human flesh, walked among us, obeyed God in all things, and experienced rejection, experienced suffering, experienced death. Where even on that cross, the forsaking of God the Father to the Son bearing the sin of the world. There's no greater alienation and isolation than that. But that's not how the story ends. God vindicated His Son. He raised Him from the dead, declared that Sacrifice is a sufficient substitute for all who have sinned and rebelled against God. They can be reconciled. They can belong once again in Him. He who stood in our place and bore our sin offers welcome, restoration, belonging, shalom. It's nothing we could have ever done to attain on our own. But it's the expression of God's character and his gift. And for all those who are outside, all those who know only rejection, isolation, and alienation, the invitation comes, welcome. Be called my child belong. Let's pray together as we prepare to observe this meal that speaks to that good word of the gospel and the reality of our belonging to one another. God, we thank you for this, your word, for the amazing, shocking reversal That you, surveying our rebellion, review, observing our isolation and alienation, did not abandon us to the judgment our path deserved. But in Christ, you endured all the penalty and consequence of that sin and rebellion that we might know reconciliation, belonging, and shalom. For those who are still far off by your word and by your spirit, draw them near. And for those of us who are yours, Father, at this table, remind us of who we are 
and to whom we belong. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.